The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the ninth chapter and the sixth verse. The sixth verse in the ninth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Again, in order to remind you of the exact context and setting of this important statement, I had perhaps better read the first five verses also of this chapter. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. But I say that I am calling your attention in particular to the message of the sixth verse. Now those of you sitting in the pews have in front of you the revised version whereas I've been reading out of the authorized version. And you will have noticed that certain words which I've been reading are not in the version that's in front of you. You haven't got these words, and he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Likewise, you haven't the words, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It reads, Lord, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And then it goes on to say, But arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Well, now, this is just a difference, of course, as between versions. It depends upon certain ancient manuscripts. But I'm preaching out of this authorized version because I have no doubt at all that at this point, and in this case, the authorized version is undoubtedly the truer version. Uh, the uh, statement about uh, arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do is obviously the answer to a request. And the request was, what wilt thou have me to do? And no doubt as that is true, it is equally true to say that he was trembling and astonished at the things which had happened. Now, uh, we've been looking at this great episode, this great incident in the life of this man, Saul of Tarsus, who became known as the Apostle Paul. We are looking at it indeed for the ninth time. And uh, we are doing so, as I've been at pains to point out, 
not merely because of its own inherent interest, but still more because of its teaching. We are interested in the apostle not only because he, is a great, he was a great man, he was a very great man. The world is interested in great men, but there are great men and great men. Here is true greatness, imperishable greatness, that will be remembered as long as the world is. I say we are not considering it merely for that reason, though. We are looking into it because this man himself tells us that what happened to him is a kind of pattern and example of what happens to all who become Christian. And as his case is laid out so plainly and clearly before us, we are able to trace these vital and essential principles. Here is a man who had been a violent opponent of Christ and of Christianity. A man who was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against it. And yet we see him becoming a Christian. And we know something about his subsequent life. No man has ever been a greater benefactor to mankind than this man. And we know something about the quality and the order and the type of life which he lived. Here is a man who mastered life and conquered its attendant circumstances. And I say he became a Christian and lived that sort of life because he had become a Christian. Well, therefore, the great thing for us is to discover how to become a Christian and to discover, furthermore, how we may know that we are Christian. Because if we are not able to face and to master and to conquer life as this man did, well, there's something wrong with our Christianity. So we are studying it in order that we may discover the answer. The essence is this. There on that road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul was made to see himself as he really was. He also saw the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it was that that produced the great change in him. The story puts it in a very dramatic manner, but that's the thing that did it. It was coming face to face with Christ and seeing himself and his need. And it produced this violent, dramatic change in his entire condition and outlook. Now, he tells us, that that which happened to him can happen to any of us. He says, God has set me forth as a pattern and an example. You can't imagine a worse case, says Paul. He is a sinner. He says he's the chief of sinners. Yet that was done to him, and it can be done to us. And we're investigating this. And in particular at the moment, we are observing that there are certain things that always accompany this great change. And we are concentrating on them for this reason. That the Bible teaches us that there are many people who think that they're Christian when they're not Christian. The Lord Jesus Christ himself taught that. You remember, he says that at the great day, certain people would come to him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works? And yet he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The foolish virgins thought they were Christians. They discovered that they were not. And there are many people who say, oh yes, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and assume that they're Christians. 
but who according to this teaching may well discover that they've never been Christians at all. So it's rather vital that we should be sure whether we are Christian or not. And I'm suggesting that there are certain tests which we can apply to ourselves, the tests which are suggested by this incident. The result of this which happened to Paul produced these effects. He trembled. He was astonished. And he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now, let me say again that I am not suggesting for a moment that every one of us has to go undergo the dramatic change that the apostle underwent on that occasion. But I do say that we must all undergo the change. The dramatic accompaniments are not essential, they're not vital. But the thing which caused it and the results that follow are invariable. So we've looked at this in detail. We've considered this question of astonishment. And I suggested that no man has a right to regard himself as a Christian unless he knows what it is to be astonished at himself. Unless you've become a bit of a problem to yourself, you're not a Christian. Unless there is an element in your life that eludes your understanding and your own explanation, you're not a Christian. Because a Christian is one who is born again and has received the divine life and the divine nature, well, I say he becomes an enigma to himself, of necessity. And he's surprised at himself. He doesn't understand himself. The second thing we emphasized, and this was last Sunday night's message, was this. That he also knows something about this trembling. Oh, I don't want to say that he need tremble in a physical manner as the apostle patently did. But I did try to show you from the scriptures that no man can come face to face with God and see himself without being alarmed at the sight and without being fearful about his own soul and his own eternal destiny. The Lord Jesus Christ himself taught that and everybody who really came into contact with him invariably felt it. Astonishment. Trembling. Ah, yes, but there's a third thing. And the third thing is the thing on which we are going to concentrate this evening. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What's it mean? Well, it means that not only was the apostle's mind engaged, not only were his emotions and his sensibilities engaged, it means that his will was also engaged. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The will is involved. Now, here as I understand it is a very great principle. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this Christian way of salvation, is so great and so wonderful that it takes in the entire personality. And it takes in the entire personality at the same time. And it is because so many fail to realize this that they go astray. There are some people who think that an intellectual assent to truth makes them Christian. It isn't enough alone. There are others who seem to think that if they have some kind of emotional experience and are carried away and don't quite know where they are, know what they're doing, that that makes them Christian. It doesn't of necessity, my friends. You can have an emotional upset and it may have nothing to do with Christianity. It may be purely psychological. 
And there are other people who think that because they exercise their will and live a certain kind of good and moral life that they're a Christian. Again, I say a Christian does that, but that alone doesn't prove that you're a Christian. This is the Christian. The Christian is one in whom the total personality is always involved. I quoted a verse which puts it like this. It's Romans six seventeen. God be thanked, says the Apostle Paul in writing to the Romans, that he were the servants of sin, but he have obeyed from the heart the form of sound words delivered unto him. Now there it is, entire. What's a Christian? Well, a Christian is, a one, is one who has put into practice willingly and with the whole of his heart the thing that he has believed and accepted with his mind. The whole man is involved. The entire personality is engaged. Now, my contention is that we are not Christian. We have no right to regard ourselves as Christians. Unless these three elements in our personality are actively involved and engaged. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ himself put this very clearly on one occasion. A man came to him and said, Master, which is the first and the greatest commandment of the law? And our Lord gave rather a surprising answer. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And you notice how he puts it? The whole personality is involved. Not one part, not another, not merely the mind, not merely the heart, not only the strength, all of them together and at the same time. The entire personality. And so I say that it is vitally important that we should come on to this third aspect of that which the apostle experienced on the way to Damascus. He sees that blessed face. He hears the words. He's seen himself. He's seen the Son of God. And he trembled with astonishment and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now let's look at this. Here, I say, is something additional, something further. What is it? Well, it is most important that we should understand this. How marvelous was this thing which happened here to this man, Saul of Tarsus. There is nothing which finally proves to us so conclusively that Saul of Tarsus became a Christian on that road to Damascus as this very question which he puts. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now, we began this series of considerations by saying that conversion is the profoundest change that a man can ever undergo. And there is nothing which shows the profundity of that which happened to this man as this very question that he puts. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Why do I say that? Well, for this reason. If you turn to the 26th chapter of this book of Acts, and if you read there the account of this selfsame incident which the apostle gave on that occasion to King Agrippa and his wife Bernice and the Roman governor Festus, 
you will find that Paul says of himself something like this. He says, before my conversion, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That was Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. He thought with himself that he ought to do many things contrary to Christ. Here he is now on the road to Damascus saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He knew what Christ had taught, what Christ demanded of people, but he disliked it. He hated it. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I believe. I verily thought with myself. He asserted his own will. There is the natural man, Saul of Tarsus. But listen to him now. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do to the very person whom he'd rejected and whose uh, commandments he had spurned and despised with scorn and with derision? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The man has been radically changed. He's not the same man, and nothing proves it like this. Well, what is it? Well, this is nothing, of course, but the surrender of the will. It is a confession of his utter, absolute submission. And you'll never find it put more plainly and clearly than it is at this point. Now I am emphasizing that this is a vital part of conversion and a vital part of becoming Christian. I read at the beginning that first chapter of Peter's first epistle just in order to show you that it's the teaching of the scriptures everywhere. Do you remember how Peter addressing those Christians puts it in these words to them? He says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian. He is one who has been separated by the Spirit unto this obedience of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that he repeated the self-same thing in the 22nd verse of that chapter? Seeing, he says, that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. The scriptures constantly speak of what they call the obedience of faith. In other words, you see, to be a Christian doesn't merely mean that you give intellectual assent to the truth. It does include that, but it doesn't stop at that. Your will must be involved. The obedience of faith. The surrender of yourself to this thing which you have believed. And there is no value in a belief unless it includes the obedience of the will. Now, this is so vital that I crave your indulgence. As I put it to you, the form of a proposition like this. I say that this surrender of the will is absolutely essential as a proof of the fact that we are truly Christian. My whole case rests on that proposition. And I would demonstrate it to you from the Bible in this way. The Bible teaches that God made men for himself. 
and that as the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession puts it, that God made us for himself, and that therefore the chief end of men is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We don't know ultimately why God created men, but we are certain about that much that he created men for his own glory and placed men in this world that he might live to love and to glorify God. That is the chief end of men. Furthermore, as we've already seen in the great commandment, which I've already quoted to you, God, through giving the law, has specifically commanded us to obey him and to glorify him in that way. God gave his law through Moses, you remember, and that is the only revelation which we have of God in the Old Testament. That's the great thing. What is man? Well, man is meant to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, God, I say, demands that. It's the thing he asks of us. So that this is something that we must ever keep in the forefront. What is sin? Well, sin is essentially disobedience. Oh, yes, Milton was absolutely right when he started that great epic paradise lost with these words of man's first disobedience and the fruit of the forbidden tree. That is absolutely biblical. It's a spiritual insight. That's the whole cause of the tragedy of life in this world this evening. That's the explanation of wars and all forms of misery. Man's first disobedience. You see, we've gone astray. We've forgotten the biblical teaching. We don't like theology. We don't like doctrine. We think that sin consists of actions. And we talk about sins, but behind sins is sin itself. And what is sin? Sin is disobedience of God. That's the very essence of sin. Now, the Bible is full of this teaching. This same Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans, says that the natural mind is enmity against God. He is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, says the Apostle. That's it. The natural man is a man who's at enmity against God. He's not subject to the law of God. He resists the law of God. He pits his will against God's will. That's the essence of sin. Or again, it puts it in this form that the natural man, the unregenerate person, the non-Christian, is one who is an enemy and an alien in his mind by wicked works. Now, it's important that we should realize that that is the very essence of sin. Sin is disobedience. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgression. The breaking of a law, the violating of a principle. And I'm emphasizing it that I may say this. If that is a true definition of sin, well then of necessity to be reconciled to God must mean 
that far from being at enmity against God and not subject to his law, we begin to love him and we surrender ourselves to him and we desire nothing beyond being obedient to his holy law. Doesn't it follow of necessity? If the thing that separates us from God is lawlessness and disobedience and refusal to obey, the very first thing that characterizes reconciliation to God must be surrender of the will. Now, the Bible, as I've said, is full of this. Self-will is the cause of all our troubles. That was the way in which the devil originally put it to men, you remember, hath God said. Should you submit yourself to God, he says, he suggested to them that they were not being given their rights, that it was rather insulting just to keep them like that in the garden within limits. He said, why shouldn't you really do anything you like? Why shouldn't you be lords of creation in a full sense and walk about and do as you please? Why does he prohibit that particular thing? He's just holding you down. He's not giving you a chance to express your personality. Assert yourself. And they listen. And as that is the thing that led to sin and the fall and the curse that has remained upon men's life in this world, obviously. The opposite of that, to become Christian and to be reconciled to God, must mean, first and foremost, that a man's whole attitude towards God is changed. His will is surrendered. Or let me put it like this to you. There is no meaning whatsoever in saying that we have come to a realization of our guilt and our sinfulness, and that we realize our need of forgiveness, and that we repent without seeing at the same time that the most important thing of all is that we should surrender our wills. I know of no more unscriptural not to say illogical teaching, than that which has so often said something like this. Now then, I want you to accept Christ as your Savior now. And later on, you can accept him as your Lord. It's illogical, it's unscriptural. If I accept Christ as my Savior, what do I mean? How does he save me? What does he save me from? Ah, oh, says someone, he saves me from my sins. But what's my sin? My sin is rebellion against God. It's disobedience against God. If I say that I know that I'm a sinner, I mean this. I must mean this. That I am under the wrath of God because I haven't kept God's holy law. And that I realize that. What is to repent to say that I'm sorry? Sorry for what? That I've been drunk or that I've been an adulterer? Not at all, primarily. That I say with David, against thee, thee only, have I sinned? And can't you see, my friends, how this false teaching and false emphasis has often led many people to think that they're not sinners at all and that they don't need to be saved because we've thought of sin so much in terms of particular sins and because we've not been guilty of those sins, we say, I'm not really conscious of the fact that I'm a sinner at all. But, my dear friend, what makes you a sinner is that you're at enmity against God, that you put your will instead of God's will, that you don't obey God in the totality of his demands, that you're not loving him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And if you're not, you're a sinner of the deepest dye. 
So if a man tells me that he'd been saved for years before he surrendered himself to Christ as Lord, I say that man doesn't know the Scriptures. To be saved means that I realize that my sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ and that I needed to be forgiven because of my disobedience. Sin is not a matter of actions. It isn't a question of good or bad actions. It's a question of my relationship to God. And you can be a highly respectable person and yet a vilest sinner because your will is self-centered and because you're using your own will and you are resisting the will of Almighty God who wants you entirely for himself. So that I argue that the final proof of the fact that a man is a Christian is that he has surrendered his will to God. If he hasn't, I'm not sure whether he's a Christian at all. He doesn't understand what sin is. And there's no point in his saying that he has repented. Repentance means this. Not so much that I go to God and say that I'm sorry that I did this and that and the other but that I go to God and I say that I am sorry and bemoan the fact that instead of living entirely to his glory and keeping his holy law, I chose my own way. I asserted my own will. I did what I wanted to do and forgot him. That's repentance. Acknowledging the self-centeredness and yielding oneself entirely to him. There is no purpose, no meaning in talking about forgiveness of sins unless it includes that. Very well. There we've seen that this is vital and essential. Well, that makes it still more important that we should go on to the next matter, which is this. What does this surrender of the will really mean and what does it include? It's all here in this incident of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What's it mean? Shall I break it up into its component parts very hurriedly? It means this. It means ceasing to oppose and to be hostile. Oh, I needn't stop with that, need I? The man who'd been so violently hostile is no longer hostile. But you and I may not have been as hostile as that, so I'll put it in a milder form. It means ceasing to argue. It means ceasing to debate. It means giving up our defense of our position as over and against the gospel of Christ. I'm not reasoning that out this evening. I'm simply leaving it as a simple statement like that. I'm doing so in order that we may, in a very practical way, test ourselves. Here's the test. Are you still arguing with the gospel? Do you still say that the Christian way of salvation is not the right way? Do you say that you really don't need the blood of Christ and that you can be a Christian without believing that he bore your sins in his own body on the tree? Are you still arguing for justification by works? Are you still arguing for your own goodness, your own merit, your own philanthropy? Are you still putting up a case against this gospel that confronts you with a cross and a death and shed blood and says without that you're damned? Are you still arguing with it? Do you say, oh, I can't understand this. I've always believed. Is that your attitude? If so, you're still not a Christian. 
When a man becomes a Christian, he stops arguing, he stops debating. The hostility and the opposition has come to an end. Lord, that's it. But let me go on and put that a little more positively. The second way I would put it is this. That not only is he not hostile, but he is ready and eager to listen and to learn. May I put it to you like this? Saul of Tarsus set out on that journey that day, as we are told here, breathing out. Here he is now taking in. That's the difference. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter, saying what he thought about Christianity, denouncing Christ as an imposter and a blasphemer, breathing out, expressing himself. All that has gone, he's now listening, he's taking in, he's anxious to learn. And it's absolutely invariable in the case of all who become Christians. Do you go to the Scriptures in order to pick holes in it and to find error in it and to show that it's wrong or inconsistent? If so, you're not a Christian. Or do you come to it as Christ said you should come as a little child? He said, unless he be converted and become as little children, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or as Paul himself put it later, if any man willeth to be wise in this world, he says, let him become a fool that he may be made wise. You've got to go down to come up. You've got to admit your nothingness. You're ready to listen and eager to listen. And then, of course, it goes on to include this. It means believing the truth concerning Christ and his work. Saul of Tarsus had heard about Christ and about what he had done. He didn't believe it. He rejected it. He sees him now, and he believes it. He knows that the despised Jesus is the Lord of glory, and that he died on the cross because it was the only way whereby God could deal with sin. He believes in him. He believes in his work. Christ had taught men that, you remember, one day they went to him and they asked the question. They said, what are the works of God that we may do them? Christ had said to them, labor not for the meat that perisheth, but for the meat that endureth unto everlasting life. And they said, what is the work of God that we may do it? And they got an answer they never expected. It was this. This is the work of God, that he believe on him whom he hath sent. And no man is a Christian until he believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. And that he came into this world in order to die for our sins, to taste death for every man, to be made a ransom for many. He believes it, he accepts it, the person and the work. But let me go further. It means believing that even though we don't quite understand it as yet. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? When the answer came back, arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee there what thou must do. What a test of a man like Saul of Tarsus. What a test for a man who's always been self-willed and very self-assertive, a very strong personality, who always thought for himself and with himself and decided for himself. Suddenly he is told, go into the city. 
and it shall be told thee there what thou must do. And like a little child, he got up and he went into the city, and he waited, he didn't know, he didn't understand, he didn't know what was going to happen, but because the Lord had said it, he did it. And this is absolutely true about everybody who becomes a Christian. There is such a thing as a kind of leap of faith. One doesn't understand, one doesn't fully comprehend, but one is confronted by the word, this is the work of God that he should believe on him whom he hath sent. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I say, but I don't understand. Ah, says the scripture, believe though you don't and you will. And I risk myself. I believe though I don't understand. I act on it. Go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. He didn't understand everything on the road to Damascus. Indeed, if you go on with this great story, you'll find that he went into Arabia for three years in order to work it out. But he had already become a Christian. It means believing, though there are certain things that we can't understand. I can't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but I believe it. It baffles, it eludes my imagination, but I believe it because it's here. I don't understand the two natures in one person in Christ. But again, I believe it because it's so plain in the Scripture. Believing even though you don't understand. And that, of course, leads to this, that you are ready to obey him and to follow him and to do what he asks of you, come what may or whatever it may be. Arise, Go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And he got up, and he went. It means, my friend, that you and I decide that Christ's way must be our way. Whatever it is, whatever it may cost. Surrender of the will includes that. And it also includes, obviously, this, that we tell him so. Wasn't Saul of Tarsus actually telling him by asking the question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What's it mean? It means this, that he's saying to him, I am now submitting and surrendering myself utterly to thee and to thy holy will. He tells him so. And you and I must tell him so. And then it means, obviously, finally, that having told him that, we prove it by acting upon it and by giving a practical demonstration of the reality of our surrender. The apostle stood up, suffered himself, led in his blindness, and went to Damascus. And there waited until God's emissary Ananias came to him and told him what he had to do. And becoming a Christian still means and still involves that for every person. 
I not only cease in my opposition and tell Christ that I'm doing so, I proceed to put into practice what I've said. I begin immediately to obey his commandments. I forsake the world. I turn my back upon it and its way of life. I align myself with God's people. I profess, I claim that I belong to them and I identify myself with them. There it is all in the case of this man, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. I've divided it up. It's all there in just one phrase. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He's got no desire except to know the will of Christ and to do it and to give himself utterly and absolutely to him. What was it, you think, that led him to that? I needn't keep you, it's so obvious. It was obviously his realization of his own utter failure. How wrong he'd been. His own inability. He thought he was right. He finds it wrong. He can no longer trust himself. His self-confidence has gone. His self-reliance has ceased to be. The masterful man who trusted his own opinion realizes the folly of it and he turns to him and says, Lord, show me the way. I'm as helpless as a babe. I'm as weak as an infant. I know nothing. I thought I knew everything. I'm a complete ignoramus. Tell me. He's lost his self-confidence. But I imagine that strengthening that was this. As he looked at that blessed person and heard his voice, the love and the mercy and the forgiveness in spite of what he'd been broke him down completely. And in some shape or form what Saul of Tarsus was saying was this. Just as I am, thy love unknown hath broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. What can he say? The love, the forbearance, the patience, the compassion. He feels it, and he's broken by it. And he says, what can I do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And in addition to that, there is this tremendous argument. There on that road to Damascus, this man suddenly realized that he had no longer any right to himself. He was a sinner under the wrath of God and he was going to hell and would have gone to hell were it not that Christ had come from heaven and had died for him and had purchased his forgiveness. He's bought him. He's ransomed him. He's no longer his own. So he puts it like this later in writing to the Corinthians. Ye are not your own. Ye have been bought with a price. 
If Christ has died for me, he owns me, he's purchased me, he's ransomed me, he's bought me out of captivity. I have no right to myself. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You're my master, you're my Lord, you're everything. You see, you can't divide these things. The cross and the Lordship are one. But shall I finally put it like this? I think that what humbled the apostle to the dust and won his allegiance and forced his surrender was the very person himself to whom he was speaking. The glory of the person, the wonder of the person, the brightness of his face, the holiness of his visage, all this transcendent glorious person the apostle felt he'd like to spend his eternity with him. One glimpse was enough. He wanted to be with him everywhere, always. So he says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Have you surrendered yourself to Christ? Yourself, I say. Your mind, your will, your right to yourself, your own life, your future, your everything. Anybody who ever sees him by faith or who comes to know him invariably reacts like this. Listen to Francis Ridley Havergill saying it. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Listen to her. Take my will, she says, and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. What's happened to her? She's seen him, the glory of the person. When you see a person and love a person, you give yourself to the person, and Paul saw him. And the glory was so great he wanted to be with him and to follow him forever. I wonder whether he felt something like this which has been put by another poet. Listen to it. O star of truth down shining through clouds of doubt and fear I ask beneath thy guidance my pathway may appear However long the journey, however hard it be, though I be lone and weary, lead on, I'll follow thee. I know thy blessed radiance can never lead astray, however ancient custom may point some other way. E'en if through untrod deserts or over trackless sea, Though I be lone and weary, lead on, I'll follow thee. Though loving friends forsake me, or plead with me in tears, though angry foes may threaten and shake my soul with fears, still to my high allegiance 
I will not faithless be through life or death forever. Lead on. I'll follow thee. If you but saw him, if you but knew him, why everything else and everybody else would recede into insignificance. Paul saw him, and having seen him, he wanted nothing else. Lord, lead on. Whether it be a trackless waste, whether it be a stormy sea, whether friends plead with me, whether I lose all, what's it matter? Lead on. I'll follow thee only to see that face and remain in thy presence. I want nothing else. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence. My all shall be. Have you said that? Have you felt that? Has he won you? Have you lost yourself to him? Has he captivated you? My dear friend, there's no need to argue about this. If you know him, he must have. You can't see him truly without loving him and giving your life to him, submitting to him, saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Have you seen him? Have you known him? The proof of it is this, that you give yourself to him. If you truly believe that he is your savior, he must also already have become your Lord. Because if you don't know and realize that he died to save you from the consequences of your disobedience, there is no value in your professed conversion, in your professed repentance, in your professed acceptance of him as Savior. He has died for us and saved us that we might be a peculiar people zealous of good works that our wills might be given to God and that we might begin to glorify God and live only to his praise. Can you say it with me? Look at him and say to him, lead on, I'll follow thee. Thou hast died for me. What can I do for thee? Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.